This week, we're taking a special look into one of the most mind-bending films of all time, The Matrix. And along the way, we asked just how many utensils did that weird kid ruin? How much kung fu can you learn in just 13 hours? And can leather actually serve as a tactical garment? Let's take the red pill and go down the rabbit hole on this edition of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hi everyone, this is Jeremy, the producer of the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Movie Podcast. Before we get the Matrix episode started, we wanted to extend a big, great thank you to the Miskatonic Brewing Company for hosting us for a live version of this episode. And a big thanks to Paul and the staff that worked that night. If you are ever in the Chicagoland area, check out Miskatonic's Tap Room in Darien, Illinois, to enjoy their self-made and delicious ales and lockers. Unfortunately, the audio recorded during the live episode was not salvageable, so we did re-record the episode for our podcast listeners that were not able to enjoy our live episode on location. So sit back and enjoy, and thanks for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Force-Fed Sci-Fi podcast i am one of your hosts chris rupp and i am joined by my co-host the blue pill sean michael colt well as sean <laughs> wants to stay plugged into a neural virtual augmented reality simulation i will take the red pill as we journey down into <laughs> the matrix today oh oh yeah are you red pill yes is that, I, is that, I will, is that what type of guy you are chris? i will red pill, red pill and be <laughs> and go into the real world because that's the type of person i am <laughs> Doesn't this film set up like an allegory for that? So life? much so. <laughs> Red pill, you take control. <laughs> passive blue pill. Uh, this film is great. You do literally follow the rabbit hole. You do. Yeah, let's bust So let's open. provide our listeners with a brief synopsis of this film, shall we? Sure, take it away. So a young hacker by the name of Neo is in search of a man named Morpheus who he believes can answer his question, what is the Matrix? After meeting a disciple of Morpheus, a beautiful woman named Trinity, Neo is led down a path that will cause him to question the basis of his entire reality and realize that he is in a fight that will cost him more than he is willing to lose. Wow, that sounds like after I took my first philosophy class, I just went through all those emotions. <laughs> uh, it's pretty good. Yeah. I'd say, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I wrote it myself. <laughs> really? The whole shebang? I, I pride myself on uh, writing the synopsis by yeah. myself. Oh, well, good. You did it all by yourself. <laughs> good boy. Well, thank you. Uh, this film is incredible. I yes. Think, I think it was a great choice. Major Sam just blew us away. Mm -hmm. Perfect timing, too. And it's a brilliant vision uh, written and directed by the Wachowskis, who at the time they were mm -hmm. known as the Wachowski brothers, but they have since... Uh, transitioned. They mm -hmm. are now just known as the Wachowskis, so we will be respectful of that from here on out. Mm -hmm. uh, produced by, I guess, somewhat legendary Joel Silver. I mean, he was more popular in the 80s. He produced some uh, action films such as Commando, yeah. Predator, Lethal Weapon, and uh, Demolition Man. Wow. Which I'm sure at some point will come up in the list. <laughs> the, yeah, I'm sure. Th that sounds like a track record. We got Schwarzenegger and Predator. Yes. And Schwarzenegger then, and Commando. And Commando. And then we have- Lethal Weapon was- um, Mel Gibson. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we see like where kind of the basis we, of we, these action scenes come from. Yeah. We see, uh, we definitely check out Joel Silver's uh, type of man 
in these films. His type of man. These chiseled, these chiseled men with somewhat long hair. <laughs> well, not yes, I would say nowadays. Yeah, this Matrix. I guess he set the precedent for the modern uh, action stars. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Matrix uh, is starring Keanu Reeves as mm-hmm. Neo, who uh, before this movie starred in films like uh, Point Break. And the uh, the Bill and Ted films, and yeah. I think I think Speed came out a couple of years yeah. before this film. So Keanu Reeves was starting to establish himself as a Hollywood action star. Oh yeah, but this film definitely took his career and just put him on a universal level mm-hmm. or global. Definitely, this film also has, I guess, would you call the great Lawrence Fishburne the great? Is, is he great? Great and legendary so? and Lawrence legend- Fishburne. Legendary? Okay, because before this, he was in um, Boys in the Hood, which is one of my personal favorite films directed by John Singleton and, and starring a uh, very young Cuba Gooding Jr. and uh, Ice Cube. Yeah, hey. Also uh, starred in What's Love Got to Do With It, where he played Ike Turner and uh, <laughs> probably got what was coming to him in terms of karma. And then uh, also was in The Color Purple. I did not know this. Yep. I've never seen it, but now, oh. that, now that I know Lawrence Fishburne's in it, I might have to add it to Come my on. personal one-to-watch list. Get woke, Chris. Go sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, that's actually, it's an incredible film. Whoopi Goldberg just destroys Isn't it. Isn't Oprah in that too? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's great. It was before she became Oprah, and she's she was so good. Yeah, there film. aren't a ton of people in the world where you can just say their first name, and then like that's it. That's it. Like If, if you refer to Tom Hanks just as Tom, people aren't going to know who you're talking about. Would you just no. say Oprah? Yeah. Like, that's it. Beyonce. Sting. Cher. <laughs> or Bono. I think Bono's his last name. All right. So, but still, so it's, it's, it's not a, a first name. It's a mononym. It's, it's so. just, yeah, it's just a one name. Uh, but also, uh, in our female lead is uh, Carrie Ann Moss, which was, mm-hmm. this is really her breakthrough role, because before oh, yeah. this, she had a ton of television credits and nothing that stands out in the way of big-time blockbuster film credits oh yeah she i think she was quoted saying before the matrix she didn't have a career yeah and then we get hugo weaving as Mm -hmm. agent smith and oh yeah did not know this but prior to the matrix he had a voiceover role in uh the the film babe ah rock on and then it was also had the same voiceover role in babe pig in the city which (laughs) i haven't seen either of those films no you haven't seen babe i have not that was not a required viewing in my household as a young as a young lad not even at like like high school or middle school or elementary school no come on you you missed out (laughs) your sad sad childhood chris (laughs) i don't know if it was sad i mean i watched jurassic park like every week that's what i mean like where (laughs) was jurassic park indiana jones and terminator like all the time that's what i'm talking about your innocence was gone it's like hey sean let's watch this little piggy learn my innocence was gone when i saw bambi's mom get shot okay that's what i mean you're just like dinosaurs a little five-year-old chris like wow but anyway that's enough of the sad glimpse into my childhood Rounding out the cast, we get a Joey Pantoliano or Joey Pants. Joey Pants, as we will call him from here on out. Yeah, before this, he's got a whole litany of credits that are just impressive. The Goonies, Empire of the Sun, uh, Midnight Run, which is one of my, another personal favorite of mine starring Robert De Niro and Charles Grodin. Midnight Run? Yeah. It's... What, did they have like a morning walk? <laughs> You see, folks, is what I deal with every single week. Every time I got something cool to recommend or say, Sean's just got to follow it up with something stupid to ask. Midnight Run. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. It's a great movie. It's got Robert De Niro. Yeah. So I won't poop on it. And then it also was in The Fugitive. 
Oh, yeah, he was. He and was. Uh, Bad Boys, which we will be getting the new movie for very soon. I Bad won- Boys for Life. I wonder if he's going to be in that he's one. He's going to be in that. Sweet. Yeah, so along with Lawrence Fishburne, he was one of the more accomplished actors to sign on with the film. Yeah. That really kind of led some credence to the cast and make it, you know, it's a serious movie because we got serious actors. Yeah. It's super serious, man. And they're talking about serious concepts. Yeah. Wow. But let's talk about the history behind the casting. Yes. There's a lot of different, uh, it's kind of bewildering to think that they were going to cast, instead of Keanu Reeves, they're going to cast Johnny Depp, Brad Pitt, Val Kilmer, or Nicolas Cage. And then finally, the big one I think that a lot of people have heard about is Will Smith. Yes. They went hard after Will Smith. They they wrote the role mm-hmm. of Neo with Will Smith in mind. And for some inexplicable reason, he passed on this film to do Wild Wild West, which again, so great, is inexplicable. And I think you brought this up that Will Smith said that he was too immature to do Neo. Yeah, he said he was too immature as an actor. But which... then he also passed on Django Unchained for some reason. So when when is he ever going to mature as an actor to want to take on these roles? I view it that what he does is once a decade, he'll get come across a really good role like this and do a terrible film like Wild Wild West. Because what did he do? He passed on Django Unchained and decided to do After Earth mm. with his son, the, the brilliant After Earth. No. (laughs) Which, if there was any lesson to be learned after doing After Earth, I think Will Smith said, I'm never going to make a movie with my son ever again. Or with M. Night Shyamalan. Will Smith had to carry that entire film. He's And he he was literally sitting down the whole time. He was trying his best, God bless his soul, but his son is just, he's a terrible actor. (laughs) Yeah. He's just going to go all out on poor uh, Jaden Smith. But also, the producers also went after Val Kilmer pretty hard because I saw they were they considered him for Neo and they considered him for Morpheus. They did. They really wanted Val Kilmer. I think it's just his the way he portrays like Batman mm-hmm. in uh, Forever, like just that voice. He's very stoic as an individual. Well, yeah, late mid to late nineties, Val Kilmer. I mean, he's a very pretty man. Yeah, and he was he was a hot commodity in the nineties. Yeah, like, acting wise, a lot of people. Want- I don't think I could have. S- envisioned him as Morpheus or Neo, maybe as one of the more ancillary characters, maybe an agent or... Agent or, Smith, I could see that. Or a cipher, even. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, you know, I could actually see him as uh, Neo. Yeah, maybe. But who else do we have? Lawrence Fishburne, they wanted Gary Oldman, and then Samuel L. Jackson, which is kind of crazy. Well, Gary Oldman? <laughs> I don't know if I can imagine Samuel L. Jackson sitting Neo down and go, listen here. And, yeah. Listen here, mofo. <laughs> you're going to take the red pill or the blue pill, and you're going to be happy about it either way. It doesn't work. We try. We got that Samuel, like chill Samuel in Star Wars, the prequels, and it was just like more like boring Samuel. <laughs> yeah, but then they cast Fishbird, and he absolutely crushed it. He did. He crushed it. The dialect, everything, his line delivery, and did you know they based the character off of Neil Gaiman's Morpheus in Sandman, the popular comics? Never read them. Are you, do you like graphic novels? Mm, kind of. Kind of? Well, I mean, th- if it's not Batman, I probably won't read it. Ah, well, this, it's uh, Neil Gaiman's incredible, but Morpheus is this the basically the dream lord of dreams. So they kind of base it off of his character, which he is essentially like the dream lord in mm. this film. Well, one of the requirements the Wachowskis had of their actors was they had to be able to explain and understand the Matrix. So mm-hmm. they had to hire these really smart actors, which is why we have Keanu Reeves, we have Lawrence Fishburne, 
they were required to read uh, one of the books they were required to read before production was called a, a Simulacra and Simulation, mm-hmm. which is actually the hollowed out book that Neo uses uses to store his data disks. Ah, hey. So they threw that in there. Well, and it pays <laughs> off, too, because when Morpheus is explaining to Neo what the Matrix is all about, yeah. he's doing it with the conviction of, say, like a college professor. Okay. He does seem like that type of, uh, it just, he, it seems like he knows everything and they're just kind of stringing you along the whole time. Have you ever had someone like that where it's like they knew more than you and it's yeah. just like, just tell me, dang it, tell me the answer. That was literally every college professor I ever had. Yes, they're like, but what do you think it means? Mm. And it's like, no, 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 then tell me. It's like, are you my psych professor or are you a philosophy instructor? <laughs> like, what's going on here? I'm paying your salary, damn it. <laughs> Give me the answers. Well, and, and this move by the Wachowskis is um, probably the, the one that benefited production most. They hired mm-hmm. Yuan Wu Ping to coordinate the fight scenes and train the actors. And to say that some of the actors got beat up during training uh, is an understatement. That is an understatement. Because what, Hugo Weaving needed hip surgery? Yes. And then Keanu Reeves, I think he had a spi- cervical spine fusion. So he was like losing feeling in his legs. Yeah, so which is why he didn't kick for yeah. most of the film. Well, he was out for, because I think the training was four months total and he missed two months. Mm-hmm. Which... Dude, how crazy would that be? You're just training and all of a sudden, oh, goodbye legs. Whoa, 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 whoa. what's happening? Well, again, freaking. he's not kicking a bunch. And I think where yeah. it was most um, hurting him was the scene in the dojo. Because mm-hmm. they, they could not get the scene where Neo jumps up and tries to kick Morpheus. They could not get it. So they postponed it and shot it three weeks later. And on the, the third take is the one that they used he got in it. the film. Mm-hmm. That's because... Keanu Reeves is the man. Yeah, and it, it pays off, too, because UN d- uh, designed uh, the fighting styles for each of the actors around the traits of their characters. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you get Reeves's diligence to to do a scene like that, despite being injured. I mean, you get Hugo Weaving's precision, um, Carrie Ann Moss's feminine grace, and you get Lawrence Fishburne's resilience. Yes. So it's very distinct fighting styles we see throughout the film. Oh, yeah. Who's your favorite? I would have to say um, Agent Smith's fighting because his is designed to inflict maximum damage. Okay. Like, especially in the scene in the subway station where him and Neo are fighting, you just see him just wheeling back and almost like it's windmill punching him in the ribs just so many times. And every move he has is just designed to inflict damage on people. Yeah. He's like, it's like his stats are all the way up to 100. They're just maxed from yeah. the beginning. That's crazy. Yeah, he's like one of those 99-rated players on Madden. Yeah, <laughs> you could just never beat him when you create your own. He's just... Bo Jackson in Tech Mobile. <laughs> Bo Jackson. Uh, I liked uh, Morpheus's style that, for me personally. I just loved it. He was like the big, big guy, big stiff coming in there, just boom, boom, boom. But he had such a grace to him despite being a bigger guy. So to me, I always appreciate that. Kind of reminded me of like a linebacker in football. Mm-hmm. They're just so big, but those guys can run and juke. They do it all. <laughs> or I guess Shaq in the NBA. He was surprisingly agile for well, such a big Well, if Shaq fella. could also learn to make a free throw. Yeah, well, 
No, you know, there's that joke that they built the <laughs> Staples Center out of Shaq's bricks. <laughs> That's pretty. I've never heard that. Nah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. No disrespect, Shaq. If you do happen to be listening, we love you. You're a great player, but and you make great commercials. You couldn't hit a free throw to save your life, dude. <laughs> and even you will admit that nobody's perfect. <laughs> so, one of the questions I want to lead off with as we're starting to discuss the film: mm-hmm. Do you think Morpheus is a good mentor to Neo? So I've I've changed over like repeat viewings and as I've thought about it I think um he does just enough like he doesn't make he doesn't give Neo all the answers but he also doesn't like just string him along where it's like a terrible terrible mentor because we've all had horrible bosses or we've gone to a job where the training was just absolutely lousy and you're just like good god how am I going to hack this so I think he definitely took he he embraced the role of a mentor and really led him through, kind of like uh, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you ever saw that, but to me it felt like he was definitely just the Pied Piper just leading uh, Neo through it all. And when you see the revelation that Noah's the man, or Neo's the man, he's like, yes! How about you? Well, there were many times in the beginning of Neo's training where I felt like Morpheus was suffering from confirmation bias. Confirmation bias? Because he's so in for the win with Neo being the one that he cannot even consider the possibility that Neo might not be the one. <clears throat> so every he's put all his eggs into this basket of Neo being the savior of the real world. Okay. Yeah. And what if we wouldn't have a movie if this weren't the case, but what if Neo wasn't the one? All right. What if it was someone like Trinity? That is true. What if somebody who it was still plugged into the matrix? All right. And why was everyone so, like in for the win with him. Yeah. Like what cloud? That's why I have a side. Theory. Is it just because his name was an anagram for one or something? <laughs> it could be reverse the letters, or maybe everyone has Stockholm syndrome, and Morpheus is just this horrible overlord that just everyone believes everything he said, despite leading them on a terrible journey. Well, most of what Morpheus says to him too is stuff that you get out of like a freshman philosophy class. Okay. Yeah, you know, stuff like free your mind. Let Don't go. think you are. No, you are. Or like a yoga class. Yeah. Or <laughs> welcome to the desert of the real. <laughs> I know. Some of the lines are pretty cheesy, which, you know, that is a good point. This is, it's very seldom that we ever see a film where they're so in for the win on someone. Like mm-hmm. even in Star Wars, Yoda doubted that Luke could be a Jedi, you know, mm-hmm. that he would be the one to take down Vader. So. That is kind of peculiar. Well, in episode uh, one, The Phantom Menace, Qui-Gon was all in for the win as Anakin being the chosen one because he had more bacteria in his blood than anybody else. God, and look how (laughs) that turned out. (laughs) Oh, God. They need to stop. Well, speaking (laughs) of uh, sounding like a philosophy class, the the cast seemed to me like Mm -hmm. the type of students and faculty you'd find in a philosophy class. Okay. So Neo is the new student who is kind of unsure of his surroundings, mm-hmm. uh, but eventually becomes a master and just gets it. Okay. Morpheus is the sage teacher who often throws out buzzwords to get people excited, like a motivational speaker, really. Yeah. Uh, Trinity is the TA who is the teacher's greatest student and just won't leave the, her master's side. <laughs> uh, Apoc and Switch are definitely the upperclassmen who... Enjoy the course, but are just taking it to fill out their transcripts and graduate with enough credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cypher is the bitter student who clearly has to retake the course after failing for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mouse is the underclassman who is crazy eager to be in the for- uh, course and wants to be everybody's friend. <laughs> T- 
Hank and Dozer are like the um, like the upperclassmen who may not be in the class, but be, they're just so they show like, tight in the campus that they know where everything is and ha- like all the shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah, they're the people that uh, give the tours that your first day of the class yeah. or to school. They know they're everything. the volunteer upperclassmen who have to take those, take everybody on those super tours. They're the nicest people though, and they work so hard. Well, and, and the agents are the uncaring, dispassionate administrators who just want your money. Yeah, and don't care how they get it. It sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Tip for you, all your college students: don't pay for your books. Yeah, don't, don't, never listen to administration. Don't pay for your books and don't rent them either because there's cheaper <laughs> options online. <laughs> or better yet, just like don't buy the books, period, and just don't show up to class. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, unless they take it. That's horrible advice. Don't use that. Well, whoa, 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 wait. Because <laughs> sometimes teachers do suck at teaching in college because they don't need to have, actually have an education degree. But if they take attendance, please show up. Yeah. And I think you were talking about this off air, too. This film is almost like a. Um, it's like an introductory course to a lot of yes. deep-level philosophy without hitting it over anybody's head. Totally. I mean, this film, I would say, is a crash course on uh, Plato's The Cave, Allegory of the Cave. It's so, I mean, because if you don't know, I'll give you like a crash course on it. Basically, there's a bunch of people that are in a cave, they're chained to the wall, and they see a light over their head. And behind the light is someone that, basically has puppets, puppeteer. And so their whole life they're looking and they live in this cave and they see the puppeteers and they believe that that is the truth of life and everything on the outside. But then one day a person like Morpheus comes in and frees them from said cave, their chains, and leads them outside to where they see the truth of the world and the glory and everything in it and essentially the true light. I would say Matrix is totally like that. Neo is plugged in. He's just working this horrible job. He's searching for answers. And then finally, who Trinity hits him up. Morpheus takes him. And once they unplug him and he takes the pill and everything, he literally goes to the light. Like when he comes out of the pod, the ship Mm. comes down and you just get that beautiful shot of him being lifted up into this white, like rectangle square. And I'm like, that's it, baby. Play-Doh Allegory of the Cave. Right on. But I, and there's a bunch more. I mean, if you Google it, you're going to see some Nietzsche. Like, there's there's just so much where um, that the Wachowskis took from philosophy, at least. And it's all, it's all based on whatever YouTuber also that you would listen to as well. Well, I mean, it's coupled with this, um, this cerebral way of thinking about the world and then combined in the sci-fi genre and then... Yeah. To tie it in with impressive visuals and special effects, like what we get with uh, the the bullet time effect and yeah. the lobby shootout, which uh, oh, yeah. we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about those aspects of the film today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know that you have a generational film, a film that is going to, at least in my eyes, be a staple then change Hollywood when you get something like bullet time. Like, that's just, it's breathtaking. The From the first moment at the beginning of the movie, when you see Trinity and it does the 180, I mean, that sequence just slaps you in the face as an audience. You're like, whoa, what the heck just happened? This is amazing. Well, it's crazy to think about how much that specific uh, motif has been parodied in other films since then. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's dozens of films that I found that at least, you know, had their own parody in some way to it. And it's so cool how they planned out those shots as well because they had the computer map out where all the cameras would go. Mm -hmm. And then they would time the cameras specifically on the actor's 
on a stage surrounded by green screens, mm-hmm. and then they edit it all together, and it looks incredible. Yeah. Because in real life, that scene that we're seeing in film of either Neo dodging a bullet or Trinity going up in the air to kick somebody, that all lasts maybe a second, a yeah. second and a half. Oh, yeah. If you watch the like back reels, oh, my God, it's super quick. But because of the style, I mean, it just, it's beautiful. They it's slow movie it magic. down. It is literal movie magic. And then I think there's uh, four sequences throughout the entire film that they utilize. Well, this. yeah, there's Trinity in the beginning. Then there's Neo bullet dodging. Yes. There's Morpheus running to jump into the helicopter. And then um, Neo fighting Agent Smith in the subway mm-hmm. when they're crashing. I mean, they're shooting each other. Yes, like jumping at each other, and it does the 360 of them flying in the air. You're empty. <laughs> so are you. <laughs> just just brilliant scenes. For me, I would say those are probably my favorite parts of the film, visually. Well, I mean, we haven't even talked about the lobby shootout. I, I know, in the lobby shootout, people. I think I've seen people parody the lobby as well, just due to the excessive nature of the weapons, the explosions, the The flips. most notable parody... F- I think that I can think of is in the video game Conqueror's Bad Fur Day. Okay. I've never... That sounds super... Like, <laughs> it what? Was, it was what? billed as, like, a kid's game, but it was highly inappropriate. It was, like, it was full of blood and booze, and there was literally a talking poo monster. Conqueror's... Bad Fur Day. Bad Fur Day. <laughs> Conqueror's Bad Fur... It was, it was what n- the heck is this? It was not a video game for children. Let's just put it that way. A heavy drinking red squirrel who attempts to return home to his girlfriend. <laughs> Dude, this is amazing. Yeah, it was on the Nintendo 64. Oh, man. I wonder if they're going to remake it. We'll see. Yeah, but uh, I think the lobby shootout is this master class in how to film an action scene, because I love how it starts. Mm-hmm. And it's- Walking in. I mean, the slow motion to me doesn't feel overdone. No. And it's well balanced with the full speed uh, scenes. Yeah, it's just enough slow motion and the way they speed it up, slow it down with the visual effects that you don't get bored. I feel like if they would have kept the scene going for another minute, two minutes, I personally would have gotten bored. But, I mean, they've got great sequences with the shotgun flip yes. with Trinity. That's just so awesome. Well, it's it's showcasing their abilities, too, because Neo, at this point, he's not fully confident in his abilities. Yeah. I mean, we see as this scene progresses, he gets more and more like that, but- He's definitely more reliant on weapons than he is his kung fu skills. Yes. Yeah. Throughout the movie, Neo, you see him getting more certain of who he is and becoming, or I guess embracing the concept that maybe he is the one, or maybe he, the Matrix is, you know, his, he can wrap his mind around that it's all a game. But the lobby scene, I would say, is a pretty big one for him. And you get to see him kick. Yeah. <laughs> you get a nice little kick. Yeah, he ends the scene by kicking some dude just square in the face. <laughs> and how did you like the ending of that scene? Well, with the uh, the, the the panel falling yeah. off the pillar? I thought that was great. Perfect. I don't, think, I don't think that was intentional. I think it was just like a last second thing. It was mm-hmm. just too funny to leave out of the film. Right. Because for the most part, we don't get any of these moments of levity throughout the film. And that was just- no. Like an hour into it or hour plus into it, we needed this brief moment of levity to just relax and breathe. Oh, totally. Because and like the cost in the film too, because they're going to save Morpheus, who's being tortured by Smith. And it's like, oh man, this guy actually might die. So it, it was just once again, beautiful writing, beautiful direction, pacing by the Wachowskis. They did an awesome job. Well, I, I besides the film being uh, a great action 
film and having these great uh, set pieces, mm-hmm. I think it's also a good character study as well. Character study? I mean, it's it's very it's a mixed bag. Uh, but Neo is really the only character in the film where we learn his real name, Thomas Anderson. Yeah, he's the only one we get to see be, I guess, unplugged from the Matrix. Everyone else I thought was going by their hacker names. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually think about that until you brought it up, how every person in this film sounds like a hacker name. Mm-hmm. Neo, Morpheus, Cypher, Trinity. That well, just sounds like someone. Trinity is clearly a hacker name because Neo thought that she was a dude at first. Yeah. You're the you the I thought you were the guy that hacked the IRS. I thought you were a dude. Like yeah. Most dudes do. <laughs> Just sounds like it, like the early days of Xbox Live. I mean, Morpheus. Don't get me wrong; that's a cool name, mm-hmm. but I don't think anyone names their firstborn child Morpheus. I mean, unless like you have an ego or something. Yeah, kind of. Or you're Neil Gaiman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Nowadays. I mean, how many Johns do we need to have? Maybe you got to break the seal, Chris. We just need one. We need John Wick. <laughs> Break the seal. Name your firstborn Murphy- Morpheus. Uh, I'm I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> but I I also felt like the only characters who got a true arc in the film were Neo and Trinity. Yeah, every I mean everyone else in the film you kind of knew like uh Joey Pants was the heavy that was coming in. He was the true villain. Uh Neo, you get to see him like rise and fall and become who he is. Morpheus I don't know. I felt his job was just kind of to like train Neo and like bring him out and embrace that the Matrix is isn't real. But like after Neo becomes the one, essentially, Morpheus kind of it's almost like he runs out of things to do. Morpheus falls victim to his confirmation bias, as I like to call it. There's nothing else for him to do. Yeah. And it's kind of sad as a character where you're just like, oh, it would have been interesting to see him. Be wrong. Well, because he's no longer the strongest person on mm-hmm. the crew. That's now Neo. So mm-hmm. all of his job to do is really to fly the ship around. Well, with Neo, though, there is a problem where he does become so powerful and it's almost like godlike complex. Yeah. But Smith, you do get to find things out about him, though, like how much he hates the Matrix. He hates humans. He wants to be done with it all, cancel it. Because that's why when he's torturing Morpheus, you get the whole... I'm sick of you. You're a disease. I want to end it. Give me Zion. Well, that was, I think that was more this self loathing quality that humanity has. Okay. Because think about it. If Smith gets rid of the Matrix, then he has no purpose. He's mm-hmm. deleted too. Like, where, like, is he just tired of the futility or is he just more interested? Like, I. I'm just so sick of doing this. Well, I think he's kind of sick of... Because he talks about how the first Matrix was perfect and everyone rejected it because it was too perfect. And how the Matrix... Like, they're on their sixth reboot. Like, their sixth um, attempt at it. And he talks about, like, how humans, we need some weird suffering and something to go wrong. Like, we can't just embrace perfection, which is kind of interesting. I heard someone once told me about that. Life is suffering, which is kind of Buddhist in a sense. Yeah, that is very Buddhist. Yep, the witch house he's been. Well, Trinity, I mean, she completes her arc by announcing her love for Neo, which... <laughs> well, her, her love that she was told by the um, the Oracle, right? Yeah. Yeah. That she would fall in love with the one. Mm-hmm. And it ends up being Neo. Yeah, which... What if Neo was a douchebag, though? Like, you know, like, what if he was an arrogant guy and then she's like, oh, crap, now I have to fall in love with this guy, even though he is the one. 
Well, as an audience, we have to like Neo. We have mm-hmm. to sympathize with his plight. So, and we can't do that if he's not a likable character. Do we? Well, yeah. <laughs> it would make the movie. It could make the movie interesting. Well, I mean, you couldn't have Patrick uh, Bateman from American Psycho be Neo. <laughs> you, it wouldn't work. You, can, you can't have Norman Bates be the one. I don't know, man. I've never seen. No one's ever done that. Well, it just it wouldn't work. <laughs> I mean, really, the only villain that people have like kind of rooted for is Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, yeah, that is. True. That's because Doctor Chilton was just um, not a cool dude and <laughs> deserved to get eaten in the most horrible way. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I guess for my only problem with the film was do was the acting. If Trinity, like the just the characters, but a lot of people have told me it's the that was the Wachowskis' direction that the people were supposed to kind of be like stiff. So I guess, I don't know, like Trinity's like love to me was just like a little stiff to me. It didn't feel very, almost felt forced in a sense. Well, I, I think this was only the Wachowski second film. Yeah. So I don't, I don't lay the onus entirely at them because it could just no. be rookie filmmaking mistakes, which are yeah. common. We've seen that a lot. Or, or they could be written like that, which yeah. I've had some people say, which I don't know. Maybe it's maybe there's even deeper meaning behind the acting. Well, Who when knows? did you figure out that Cipher was the villain or the baddie of the film? Uh, a little bit past the beginning because he was just complaining way too much. Like he was being way too petty. You didn't. You didn't feed me. You like. You never did that for me. I know. It's just like Jesus. Come on, man. He was just too cynical. Well, dude, so you, you know. have a bald head and you have a. Uh, all that's missing from your mustache is snidely whiplash curls. You're basically taking out ad space that you're the villain of this film. I know. He was just, he was too cynical, man. You just know initially. And the voice and everything, I mean, he had to be the heavy. Cypher has a ton of weird interactions early on in the film. Yeah. Number one it's being right in the beginning when Trinity plugs in and he's he's not expecting to have her come on. Mm-hmm. It's like you weren't supposed to like take over for me. Like blah blah blah. Like get out of here. Mm-hmm. I'm doing nefarious things on the computer. Go away. <laughs> I know. It's like wouldn't you want to be relieved of your duty? Well, then he has that really weird interaction with Neo when they're watching the the digital reign of the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Like why didn't I take the blue pill? See, I actually really enjoyed that scene because I think it actually offers a sense of realism in in the movie that a lot of People, you know, in regular day life would ask, you know, if you have a bad day at your job, you just started, you'd be like, man, am I really doing the right thing? Why did I do this? So I actually, I really enjoyed that. Well, he, Cypher is representative of this instant gratification drive-through culture that's still very prevalent today. He wants everything now. He wants to be the savior. And if he's not going to get it, well, then... Screw everybody else. Yeah, I'm going to find a way, even if it hurts everyone, because me. Because, uh, yeah, he totally just murders like half the crew. He fries everybody else without, without even considering the possibility that once the agents get what they want from him, they're probably just going to kill him, too. Oh, yeah. Well, there's no way to plug back in. <laughs> I mean, I feel like he was just so bent out of shape about the living conditions, and it almost felt like he was hurt 
by mm-hmm. Morpheus, you know, like Morpheus betrayed him in a sense. Well, then there was that weird hop he has on the yes! Morpheus and it just straddles him. Like, what the? Dude, that's vintage Joey Pants. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> I was like, what is this? The great thing about Joey Pants is you can always count on him to do something unexpected in every movie he's in. And that's mm-hmm. why he's so awesome. He is so awesome. But the film needed something more of a threat than just the agents and the Sentinels. Yes. Because yes. the agents, they're confined to the Matrix. So they need that person yeah. outside. And for the religious connotations in this film, he represents Judas. Yes. That betrays Neo, a.k.a. Jesus. Well, in the course of Cypher having his Judas turn, he kills everybody else. I yeah, mean, he betrays everyone. I mean, Mouse gra- uh, dies gruesomely in yeah. the Matrix. Uh, and then he's barbecues Tank and Dozer. Yeah. And then pulls the plug just on APOC and switch just like unceremoniously like, oh, look what I can do. I know. Better say your last few words. Oh, too and That was so, that was so cold hearted. It was so good though. I'm like, yes. APOC just has that look of like, <laughs> like APOC knows that Trinity can't do anything to help him. So it was more just <laughs> like a, oh crap. I like it because Joey Pants being the villain the real life villain he provides the emotion um that hugo weaving as the i guess sentinel whatever in the machine that they lack because they're super just monotone throughout so his brevity and ability to just add some emotional flavor and flair to it it was pretty good there's a weird film where we get three distinct baddies yeah. we've got the agents we've got cypher and we have the sentinels yeah which the sentinels were the design of those was so freaky. Yeah. I almost wish they were a bigger part of the film. I know, because it's brilliant. I think it's due to the CGI at the time. It just wasn't up to snuff. So they didn't want to show too much to where the audience goes, ooh, that looks fake. Because I think it held up. Yeah, it still does in a lot of ways. And the Sentinels do become a bigger part of later on later on in the franchise. But they look kind of jellyfish, <laughs> like evil jellyfish, evil jellyfish, like that's... this weird like je- jellyfish war of the worlds combination that's just going to rip your skin off and <laughs> suck, turn you into uh, black goo. Pretty much. Good God. I do appreciate how the filmmakers took intentional steps in distinguishing the matrix from the real world yeah the real world is very mundane the real world or, has... or the uh i beg my pardon the matrix is very mundane the real world looks very clear yeah, there's concise there's a distinct color palette between the matrix and the real world mm-hmm. whereas everything in the matrix is has this green hue to it almost mm-hmm. like you're in a computer like you're seeing computer code yeah and in the r- real world aboard the nebuchadnezzar everything is blue the wires are exposed. Nothing is hidden. Everything's there. It's laid bare for people to see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the clothing. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the Matrix, everything just seems fabricated and mass-produced and no real attention to detail. Yep. And then in the real world, there everything has this textile look to it like um, like everybody made it themselves. Like It's mm-hmm. their own personal clothing that they've taken pride in making. Oh, yeah. they de- Well, they just like rock. They load on the steampunk feel in the real world. Like with the ship and everything, like with the duct tape and like the chairs. It's like, oh, baby, here we go. And I guess that could lead into our uh, their lust for leather. Oh, so much <laughs> leather. You know, for the life of me, I will never be able to figure out why action movies or just movies in general are insistent on using leather 
as a tactical garment. Because it looks cool, Chris. It may look cool, but it is useless. Unless you're riding a motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) Outside of that, yeah. It shrinks when it gets wet, and it will not keep you warm in winter. Yeah. So sorry to say, if you've got a very expensive leather jacket, odds are you just wasted some money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I do have a leather jacket. But Sa- they last, dude. Mine's been around for like 12 years. Save yourself some money and get yourself a big old thick North Face jacket that'll keep you warm. Oh, you bougie. That's not bougie. I want to stay warm in winter. North Face? But they always seem like so thin. Yeah, well, I, I one of my friends uh, used to work for a North Face outlet in yeah. Colorado, so if I ever needed anything like on the cheap, oh. I would just- pick out something online like hey can you get this for me like oh yeah sure no problem clickety clack and it's all done hey the hookups man yeah so that's why you wear north face yeah it's awesome all makes sense yeah the leather i'll never understand it either and they parody it too in the uh later like in 03 with jt and sean william scott that beautiful (laughs) beautiful clip if you ever want to like laugh for a bit check it out it's on youtube they parody uh, what Reloaded, I think. Yeah, which it was just hysterical. We watched that before we started recording. Yeah. That is so funny. Was thinking about Neo fighting Mister Smith, and then I was playing the JT song while like uh, remembering him fighting. I'm like, wait, did that happen? Was that was that music actually going on? Because it was it was quite enjoyable. I mean, one of the big themes in the movie is this persistent. Uh, notion of what's real and what's not real. Yeah. And it got me thinking, you know, there there's a lot of philosophical theories out, about, out there about are we living in a computer simulation right now? Yeah. And I found a paper uh, written in 2003 by an Oxford professor by the name of Nick Bostrom Ooh. with uh, this title of are we living in a computer simulation who proposes that we may already be living in that. Okay. Now, there's a whole lot of scientific jargon and mathematic equations in there which i am by no means qualified to explain okay but the gist of it is is that it's safe to assume that in the future computing power will be infinitely more advanced than it is now and that these computers could run any number of in uh, simulations so what bostrom proposes that since this power would only be available very far into the future that humanity may have already encountered an extinction level event and only the computers remain to run a simulation in what is called a post-human era. Mm-hmm. So the, the computers are running a simulation to basically keep the last bastion of humanity comfortable and not Interesting. not having to live in the, the horrible reality of a post-human era. But they're not uh, siphoning and like living off of us. No, the human beings do not become a battery. Oh, okay. Yeah, even though it seems like it would be the most inefficient battery ever, a human being. <laughs> But, okay, so that's kind of nice and compassionate. Yeah. <laughs> but it, if we turn the world into that, I mean, it's our fault. So I would be the mean robot. They'd be like, no, you did this. You have to deal with it. You'd be the, the benevolent robot dictator? I would. I'd free, like, three people a year and show them the truth. And then just push them off a cliff? Oh, I'd just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, probably. <laughs> well, you can't be a dictator if you're not killing at least a few people. Or like just putting them in like their own little Zion and being like, yeah, try living life now. Kind of like- Go taking, away. Yeah, taking a city person and throwing them in the wilderness, be like, good luck. No Wi-Fi here. Uh, well, I would be a benevolent dictator. 
I mean, personally, I don't think we're living in a computer simulation. You don't think so? No. No? No. This is real? I think I think the world we- Whatever inha- real is, man. I think the world we're inhabiting right now is real, and it's as real as we're going to get. That's fascinating. Uh, I my I once in college I learned about how our eyes basically like make up what we see is real, mm-hmm. and so like after that, kind of just like well, this concept is just is dragged on. I mean, I don't want to say dragged on, but it's it's brought up throughout the entirety of the film. What is real? I mean, even when Morpheus meets Neo for the first time, that whole conversation is Morpheus trying to glean. Neo's perspective on how he feels about the world. Mm-hmm. We get that great shot of him too, with you know one one hand in each of the frame of his glasses with the red pill and the blue pill. Yeah, oh, brilliant! <laughs> A lot of uh, Alice in Wonderland oh. uh, <laughs> allegory is there. Totally, but I don't. I agree with you. I don't think this is reality because to question your reality, then I just don't think you would be in that reality. I mean, accepting your reality is, it's like step one for living. Yeah. Is what it is. I mean, even even as an infant, you recognize, you know, the base world around you. Like, you have your mother and your father. Mm-hmm. While those concepts aren't aren't familiar to you right now because you're an infant. Yeah. I mean, you recognize that these people are your caregivers. And, you know, they're going to change Survival. you if you have a poopy diaper or if you <laughs> need to eat or if you've got to sleep. They're going to take care of you. So you recognize that the world that you live in has its limitations, but as you get older, your reality is going to expand beyond your home and to your yeah. your family and then your group friends. That's right. And if you uh, are like Timothy Leary and experiment with drugs, then maybe your reality changes altogether. <laughs> so I feel like the only people I've ever met that are like, oh, we're in the Matrix are people that have done like acid or something. Well, it's like, oh, okay. Well, another argument against the fact that we're living in a computer <laughs> simulation is that reality can't be boiled down to a simple equation, in my opinion. Oh, you you know, you don't think like we're just animals? No. I it's mean, just well, all like um, feelings, like love and everything is just up, oh, chemical explosion, chemical explosion. Well, to to boil things down in terms of just chemical reactions inside your body, mm-hmm. like that almost simplifies the meaning of life. Well, I think it's kind of nihilistic. Well, yeah, it is. It certainly is. But life is more than just a series of chemical reactions in your body. It's what you are hearing, what you're smelling, what yeah. you're seeing. And it's how your brain is processing all that and sorting that and storing memories and experiences for later that you want to save and revisit. Mm-hmm. And that's what life is. Yeah. is It's a series of experiences and events that have meaning to each individual person. Ooh. Well, yeah. I mean, Listen to this. This week in Force Fed Sci-Fi. Yeah, life isn't just a series of chemical reactions and equations <laughs> that a computer can figure out. Oh, I know a subreddit group that would totally disagree with you. Oh, <laughs> bully for them. <laughs> this week we talk about the meaning of life. Well, and also I think The Matrix serves as a cautionary tale. Yeah, for tech. Oh, it's definitely another one. Definitely about the dangers of technology. I mean, even Morpheus mentions that the world ended when humanity developed artificial intelligence. Yeah, which is coming up. I mean, we already, I think we have that female robot that said she wanted to like end humans or whatever, destroy humans or something, take yeah. over the world. I mean, look at Ultron. He was plugged into the internet for like five seconds. I know. He was like, I'm going to kill everybody. I know. I don't blame him, though. And some, I understand that perspective. 
So, I mean, do you think that's a possibility, though? Like, AI becoming... I guess we, we did talk about this with her, in a sense of, like, how technology will change, do you think? With this? I mean, with them turning us into the I Matrix? I think this kind of artificial intelligence is very hard to achieve. Yeah. Because as we talked about in her, there's no roadmap to get there. No. But becoming the Matrix? <laughs> that <laughs> is... That's, I'm going to say maybe a 1% chance. That's a quantum leap of quantum leaps of technology. Right. Like, we are we are not there yet. We probably won't be there yet for a couple hundred years. But if Congress, like, saves this film or whatever, you know, they put it in the library, isn't that just giving the blueprint to the all the AIs? They're going to be like, oh, what's this? Oh, what a great blueprint to take over humans. Not really, because how often have we found in the movies we've talked about that the science is actually plausible. Oh, that's true. The science generally is And not. it doesn't talk about how any of this stuff works. It's just people plugging into these needle-like objects, and they're, boom, they're in the simulation. Yeah. That's not, that's not an explanation as to how it works. No, it is not. They do not go uh, too, far, too far into the details. However, people thought Star Trek in the 60s was bogus. And look, now we have smartphones. So who knows? In 50 years, they'll start talking about it. Plugging in. We'll be like, no, we saw a movie on this. We talked about it. Well, speaking of things that made you go, no, no. Who was your red shirt, Sean? <laughs> My red shirt was all those innocent people that got taken over by the agents. So like in this film, I guess the agents could take over and murder just random people, delete them, unplug them. I don't know how they would take them over, but randomly throughout. Like, it could pop up on a building, anywhere when Neo was becoming more well-rounded with what the Matrix was. So a lot of people were dead, man. Mm -hmm. Like, those are people that, like, had lives and stuff going on. Like, how did they explain that to the families? Like, what? Do they just, like, erase the memories of, like, them having a husband, wife, kids? Just a single parent now? Maybe. I don't know. I know, right? They I don't know how it works. I know. Those, that's why it's my red shirt, man. All these it just happened. People. We don't know how it works. That's right. How about you? You know, I went with Dozer, and not Dozer. for the reason that we normally pick for Ooh. red shirts. This is an augmented red shirt. Not that I think that his death was meaningless, but he rushed in to help his little brother, mm -hmm. and he had to have known the consequences of what he was going to do. But he did it without hesitation. And I feel like in a situation like that where I saw one of my best friends being zapped <laughs> like that, I, I would be like Dozer and rush in and try to help. Now, the crux of it is, Chris, you have to learn from his mistakes. So what do we learn? He zagged when he should have zigged. That's right. You get low and you zigzag, baby. Yeah, you, be like, Bo, you, you be like Bo Jackson and you juke the defender. <laughs> That's right. Don't just rush him like Miley Cyrus. No wrecking <laughs> balls needed, baby. All right. Did you have a lens flare, Sean? Uh, lens flare, outside of just um, what threw me was, like I said, just kind of the monotoneness of the acting sometimes. But um, I'd say that. And let's loop it in with the leather because there was just so much steampunk. <laughs> it's like we get it, cyberpunk. Woo! But how about you? I have to go with the weird British kid who is ruining all the spoons. <laughs> now, Dio is getting enough weird and vague instructions from Morpheus. And now this kid in the Oracle's parlor yeah. is coming in with his weird stuff now. Yeah. And if you look closely in that scene, there's a rack on the wall behind Neo. It's full of a bunch of decorative spoons. So 
there has to be somebody in that apartment who's keeping an eye on that kid. And the second he starts eyeing those decorative spoons, somebody is just looking at him like, no, those aren't for you. You leave those alone. They've got a spray bottle nearby. Bad, bad bottle. Must off. No, Get away from no. those spoons. Because I think he, I paused it and rewound, and there were seven spoons that he twisted. Yeah. <laughs> this kid is just you know going through the utensil drawer like, mm, what can I destroy today? There is no spoon. Yeah, whatever, kid. Now, now there are <laughs> now there are no spoons. Period. Because you know what happened? You bent them all, you little freak. But that's such a good line. And then when Neil's like, "There is no spoon," I mean, it's just perfect. He starts dodging the bullets. Oh, I loved it. You know what? Uh, but I did find something for toxic fandom. All right. Are you ready for this week in toxic fandom? Probably not. <laughs> Probably angry, but let's do it. So the bomb used in the elevator uses mercury switches. Oh, God. While the glass vials with mercury look cool on camera, this would not have been the best choice, as the mercury could touch the contacts during the fall, causing a premature explosion. What bomb pedant is watching this thinking, that's not right, as they push their glasses back onto the bridge of their noses. I know. So from Arkansas, like, now nah, what you gotta see here is get some C four. It's like why what? do they gotta be from Arkansas? Why can't they just be like regular North? Why can't they be like disciples of Kaczynski or something? You're absolutely right. Why can't they be from Chicago? Yeah, what you need is some C four. <laughs> well, I think there's one last question we should end the film discussion on. Okay. Would you take the red pill or the blue pill, Sean? The red pill or the blue pill? Oh, so blue pill, I stay in. And I just continue doing this. Yes. They just erase my memory. Mm-hmm. So I continue being Sean Culp. Yes. A.K.A. Batman. You are not Batman in this oh, world. I'm Batman. You are not Batman in this world. Totally Batman. No, you're not. Well, my bedspread says otherwise. Well, so, bully for you. If that's the case, then I could take the red pill and learn to fly and dodge bullets and really be Batman. So I'm going to take the red pill and be the one, man. All right. Because that's who I am. <laughs> you are not Batman. Or I guess Superman, because he's virtually Okay, even if you take the red pill, you're in the real world, but then you're when you plug into the Matrix, yes, you get to then do- I'm ha- Superman. Well, you get to have those abilities, but that's just limited to the Matrix. Unless- and all, you're, and all you're doing is just manipulating computer programs. Unless I'm unless like what? Neo and Matrix Reloaded and somehow figure out a way to transcend those abilities- into the real world, and then I could just like stop machines. Well, you know what? That's a good segue into <laughs> discussing the legacy of the Matrix. So the film grossed over four hundred and sixty-three million dollars during its box office run, which is pretty good, pretty impressive, especially for ninety-nine. Yeah, absolutely. Reviews were overwhelmingly positive, but a lot of critics were divided on the plot and the visuals. Yeah. But however, there's been many filmmakers and actors who have praised the film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Simon Pegg said it was better science fiction in action than The Phantom Menace. Oh, totally. (laughs) Quentin Tarantino calls it one of his favorite films from the 20th century. Well. James Cameron called it, quote, profoundly fresh. Christopher Nolan called it a mainstream phenomena. That's pretty heavy Yeah, and Chad Stahelski, who was uh, Reeves' longtime stunt double and director of the John Wick films, uh, cited this as a major inspiration for his work on Aww. the John Wick series. So we can say this film has definitely been inspirational for many. Yeah. Holds an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I do feel like the, that 12% of dissenting opinions are people who just didn't get it. Which I don't understand how you can't get it. 
but maybe we're just that woke. You know, I recently met somebody who said that they didn't like The Matrix, and I was tempted to ask, what, did you not understand it? <laughs> but given how I just met this person, I didn't want to immediately offend them. <laughs> Aww, trying I'm... to develop some social skills. <laughs> oh, okay, some filter. Well, I'll leave that to you. Um, the, well, I could see it, like, with the kung fu, maybe. But I mean, come on, it's kung fu, baby. Yeah, what, what do you have against kung fu? That's right. Well, the film also won four Academy Awards, all the awards it was nominated for. So, Bully. It's Bully. <laughs> won Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. Oh, my God, yes. Also took home Best Science Fiction Film at the 26th Saturn Awards. Mm-hmm. And the Wachowskis would also take home Best Directors at yeah. the ceremony as well. Heck, yeah. And it got a couple Baffas, too. Yeah. See, I don't understand. Well, the Saturn one is kind of shocking that nothing, they didn't get best, um, oh, they did get, but like best writer or any of that well, stuff. Well, they were nominated for other ones, but it's, that's that's what they won. But this film definitely, I mean, they made tech that changed like cinema for the rest of like the past 20 years. I mean, it's it's this film is just so mind bending. Well, it's weird to think about this film in the context of when it came out. Because right. in 1999, we saw The Phantom Menace come come out, and that was very visual effects heavy, not great on story, very lacking. And then this film came out, which is kind of a breath of fresh air for, you know, action yeah. and visual effects and science fiction films. Unless you're the critics that yeah. can't understand the plot, which I don't understand. Well, whatever. And then we get to the subsequent sequels. And they're almost like the opposite side of that same coin. Oh. They're they're very heavy on the visual effects. The action is very bland. Yeah, and it's they're mediocre, semi decent films. Well, yeah, they well they fall victim to like the times of when I think because they were young, the Wachowskis, and the the um, studio just get, took a chance on them. Or like, here you go, here's some money. Go do what you can with your passion project. But after they saw like how much money it was going to make, I'm sure they doubled, tripled the budget. And then, you know, once a studio does that, they want control. So they definitely, I think, fell victim to that, which it's kind of funny because modern action films are bland action, <laughs> kind of like over-the-top effects with no story. So I, I don't know. I think that's just the 2000s for you, man. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It, it's sad because I really think like the film's could have been better but we do have a new one coming out we do oh yeah this uh it spawned the two main film sequels the matrix uh reloaded and matrix revolutions there's a third film Mm -hmm. uh sequel excuse me that's on on the way it's in development Mm -hmm. we should be getting that in a couple years or a few video games that came out based on the film Mm -hmm. um the film sequels were not as well received by the fans but actually matrix reloaded surpassed the first film's box office gross oh yeah I mean, we won't spend too much time discussing the franchise as a whole, but I mean, what are your thoughts on the other films, just real quick? Do they weaken the legacy of this first one? Uh, I think so. I think the second one was pretty good, but the third one was just kind of like, what? But I guess it just depends on who you are. They, from what I've seen with a lot of reviews on it is, um, because I've only seen them each once, and I didn't take into consideration like all the religious and theology mm-hmm. all the symbolism that's in them so i've heard some people say they're they're just even more they they try to like dive into like eastern religion and buddhism so i don't know if you're a theologist go for it 
If not, I mean, the action was just too boring and mm -hmm. no story, man. They took all the worst elements and just like amplified them. Well, because I like to leave people with a, a nice, interesting tidbit of trivia. All right. When it came out for home release, DVDs were becoming the norm in the industry. Mm -hmm. So this was actually the first film to sell one million copies on DVD and then would later sell three million copies on DVD. And by the time The Matrix Reloaded came out, it had sold over 30 million copies That's pretty on good. DVD. So odds are you know somebody who has this on DVD at home. Hey, probably. Yes. I mean, that's a good 10% of the population. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but this film was also another notch in Lawrence Fishburne's career, definitely aided Keanu Reeves's now legendary status. Oh, yeah. Oh. Helped kickstart Carrie Ann Moss's career, another entry into Joey Pants's re uh, resume. I mean, but the Wachowskis did kind of peak after this one. Yeah, because uh, there's really nothing. They made, like, Speed Racer. Um, which I've seen, and it's basically just take bullet time, and it times it by, like, 50, because it's, like, the whole movie's bullet time. Uh, Cloud Atlas is pretty good if you can sit through, like, three and a half hours of just, like, symbolism. I can't. So I don't blame you. I think they just, they really dove into the artsy side of their film. Uh, I don't know. They peak, though? You think so? Well, yeah, they haven't had nearly the same success as they had with this one. Can you really peak if only one of your films that you've done is good? <laughs> well, look at Michael. Maybe it's like you caught lightning on the bottle once. They're kind of like the band that did the one-hit wonder. Well, look at Michael, like, Michael uh, Cimino, who's the director of The Deer Hunter. Won all sorts of Academy Awards, one of the best films of all time. And then he follows it up with Heaven's Gate, which was this total commercial flop. It was made on like a- Sounds familiar. It was made on like a, at the time, I think it was made on like a $15 million budget. It only yeah. wound up grossing $2 million Ooh. and just totally derailed his career. Yeah. Well, the studios then probably dipped out on him, right? Yeah. So that's pretty tough though. You make one and then the second one- It's, oh, hard, to, it's hard to recover from that. But these, like the Wachowskis, they keep getting like movies, so- Well, I got two words for you. Jupiter Ascending. Oh, it's so bad. Terrible. <laughs> Or as Charles Barkley says, T-R-B-L, terrible. <laughs> I think it's just that because The Matrix was so prominent, people still want to give them a chance, like as the sci-fi people. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I think they really just got one good. <laughs> you know, it's like you, get, you did one really good one, but you have one good year in the MLB, and then you live the rest of well, your career Well, this film of was that. good enough to get selected for preservation by the Library of Congress in there 2012. A mere 13 years after release. Which so far, that's the shortest that we've yeah. seen on Well, here. for context, it took Jurassic Park 25 years to get in. That's what I mean. Yeah. That's nuts. Uh, Yuen Wu-Ping uh, continues to work on major Hollywood films. He did uh, Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. He did Lethal Weapon 4. Ah. Uh, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. See. Along with the sequels for The Matrix, he did those. And he continues to work in Hollywood and in China, so... Congratulations. He's rocking. Are you and whooping? <laughs> you are the man. So, with all that in mind, Sean, what do you say we rate the film? Let's rate it. So, on our scale on the Force Fed Sci Fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what do you give to The Matrix? I would say strap on your uh, boots and don your, uh, what is that? Trench coat? <laughs> Leather <laughs> trench coat? Because we're going into the Matrix. Let's do it. That's right. Um, definitely. Four. Um, it's it's best. <laughs> I'd love to host a viewing party for this because you can just take so much away from it, man. 
It's it's one of those films that really changes your life. Mm-hmm. So I'm down. How about you? I mean, I would also happily host a viewing party. I mean, there isn't anything about this film I don't like. Mm-hmm. I mean, every scene and every line of dialogue is designed to move the plot forward. And the film never lags at any point. No. I mean, Keanu Reeves is able to put aside a lot of his boyish mannerisms and delivers a more matured performance for a change and eventually comes into his own as Neo. Uh, this film is rounded out with a bunch of great supporting uh, performances and with many actors becoming world-renowned after the release. And the visuals are some of the best I've ever seen in any film, and the action and fighting scenes remain some of the best that have ever been put on screen. Yeah. I'll second that, man. I couldn't say it better. Yeah. I'm down. Awesome. You get our fours. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you say we pick our film for next time, Sean? It's time to call her, man. Who are we going to call? Major Samantha. Then we're going to call her, <laughs> not the Ghostbusters. Because <laughs> Ghostbusters couldn't help in this case. They couldn't. So, we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, to help us pick from a list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected... Major Samantha. (laughs) Just selected number five is a film from 1998 and remake of the 1960s television show, It Is Lost in Space. So we're getting a a Star Trek ripoff next time. (laughs) Oh, great. So that'll be be our film for next time. Please watch and enjoy with us. And if you enjoyed today's show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at FourceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. Forcefed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.